Hey everyone, Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge. In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast. Join us for three weeks of exciting challenges where engineers, designers, and content creators will use Impact Framework to measure software's environmental footprint. We can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this incredible event. See you there. If everyone has their data out in the open, they don't feel precious like they're being compared in a negative way. There's incentives to make things better, but we also let all of these open source tools consume from a curated, trusted data source. So open source is almost like that trusted gate to good data. Hello, and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. In each episode, we discuss the latest news and events surrounding green software. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software. I'm your host, Asim Hussain. So welcome to this podcast episode. My name is Asim Hussain. I'm the Executive Director and Chairperson of the Green Software Foundation, and I'm also the Green Cloud Advocacy Lead at Microsoft. Hello, I am Chris Lowe-Jones. I am one of the co-chairs of the Open Source Working Group at the Green Software Foundation, and I'm also head of Open Technologies at Avanard. Hey folks, I'm Dan Lewis-Tokley. I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm also a co-chair of the Open Source Working Group at the Green Software Foundation, and I'm the Green Cloud Lead at ThoughtWorks in North America. Woo! So it's actually so amazing to have so many people um, like focused on green software and you know in, in, in these environments. So Chris, CLJ, Chris O'Jones, so you are at a conference today and you're talking to people about open source software and green open source software, aren't you? Yeah, that's correct. So I am at Build today, or specifically, I'm at the UK chapter in Reading near London. And it's a pretty timely topic, this one, because I co-presented this morning on green software. And there's a really big discussion, started with the Green Software Foundation, and then we quickly moved on to CNCF, the DPIA, and tons of other, other open source communities. What's cool is everyone's first thought was, how can we work with each other? And also, what is green software? So. Yeah, what is green software? So, what are, out of interest, what are people? What is the general impression of people as to what is green software? Because this is a, a question which is just, I think, going to constantly be redefined year and year and year. It's interesting, actually, because I've seen three broad definitions. The first one was sustainability with technology. So anything from sustainability, Microsoft Sustainability Cloud, things like how you track people around your building to make them more efficient. So using technology to make things greener. Then there was software, which is, from my point of view, intrinsically green. So making code greener and emit less emissions. 
And I think that the final piece was kind of some combination of the two. So things like using green software for carbon accounting, which was interesting because I don't really consider that because I tend to assume that a lot of the accounting protocols like blockchain are inherently not green. So, <laughs> which I might be a bit out of date on now, but yeah, th- three definitions there. When both of you talk about kind of green, because you're both leading the open source working group in the foundation, what, what do you think of when you say, if someone says, what is green open source software? What is open source green software? I can, ha- I can have a stab, uh, Sim. I suppose maybe two starting points. One is open source information. I suppose it doesn't necessarily need to be code, right? It could be data or research, but open and readily available uh, tools, frameworks of research that help enable practitioners in, in the technology space to build software that is greener. And what we mean by that is software that consumes less you know, energy, particularly dirty energy, and that emits less carbon. It's a, we've got quite a wide uh, gambit within the open source working group to sort of explore and discover and help drive and accelerate projects, open source projects that help really enable that space. I think that's been predominantly our focus over the last year. But I think another component is trying to find and understand and accelerate software itself that is doing things in a greener way. And so maybe leveraging some of those tools or frameworks that we've discovered, but to help create examples of, you know, software that's written in a greener way as sort of ways for others to learn through that process. So some of the ways that I like to think about it. Yeah, I guess I, I'd broadly agree with that. So I like the way you started because I think about the three opens, open data, open software and open hardware. So it's kind of sharing sharing those different approaches to kind of collaboration and making a lot of important information available outside of large corporates for, for the common good. And then for me, green software, I do think about carbon and reducing electricity. I also like to think about the planetary boundaries theory, which I'm probably always banging on about but also thinking about in future, how might we think about e-waste, pollution, and even vague things like land usage, reducing chemicals, which are much harder to, to affect in any way as software engineers, but I still think we could have some impact. I think I think that that's one of the space, that's kind of one of the challenges that we have is that you know, trying to get everybody focused in on this space, I think required a lot of you know narrowing down, narrowing down the targets. And a lot of us really talk about carbon emission and things like that. But you know, you're talking about planetary boundaries. There are other things. There are other problems. Believe it or not, there's other problems in this in this world other than just carbon emissions. But and I think you're right. I think we will like over time, like, kind of open that open that gate open. But I I don't quite feel that we're we're getting there. But I don't feel quite feel like the carbon the carbon problem has been solved just yet. Although I was kind of really, because I know we, we've been chatting to Bovis, which is another nom, and they've released, actually they've released their open source API, their carbon a- API. And one of the things it does, I forgot, Chris, what the different, pra- it, 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 it tells you the carbon emissions. It's, it's an API where you can provide it, you know, adjacent description of this is the, these are the machines I'm working on. This is how many, how much CPU I, I use, et cetera. And it returns to you, not just your, carbon emissions estimate but also i think it was primary energy and i forgot what the the, the other one they were turning a, abiotic yeah there was also the manufacturing so they broke it down into like the different scopes didn't they scope one two three and broke it down in that way which which was interesting but but also beyond beyond carbon it was also you know oh the minerals and mineral the min- yeah yeah and reclamation and, and, yeah yeah and, and, and that stuff as well which i think is is interesting they're they're also like looking to broaden out the scope of green to beyond just carbon to other things as well. 
I like that because my concern is where is the tipping point? Because so many organizations have net zero carbon targets, you know, either in the next few years or decades in the future. I do think that now is the time to stay narrow, but eventually we might have to widen out because otherwise if you leave it too late, almost who's addressing the other problems. But yeah, I think now now's, we're still in a good space at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, which is an, a really interesting trade-offs, right? Because as we're building these tools and frameworks, we want to architect things in a way that deliver value in the short term in terms of, you know, quantifying and measuring carbon emissions. But we don't want to build in a way that it's going to be really difficult in the future to consider other factors. And so we want to think about our interfaces and design tooling in the space that can be extensible to like future, future use yeah. cases, not beyond carbon, which is like really interesting problem to think about. Oh, beyond carbon. That's a that's a good title for something. I'm not too sure what. <laughs> Maybe a future podcast episode. Future podcast, yeah, future podcast. <laughs> and I think I think, but I think you you hit on something there as well, Chris, which is like you know, it's about the targets. So like organizations set. So if an organization sets a net zero target, that's a target relates to carbon, and therefore all of the underlying infrastructure and tools and everything tools up to 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 solve the carbon problem. But then as organ, I don't know what an equivalent. I have no idea, actually, what an equivalent target would be for some of these other things. Like, I know at Microsoft, they also look at, I, want to, I just want to say the word water. I want to say potable water. Like, you know, water scarcity is, is, is one of the key things that they're looking at. And e-waste, and have set targets for that as well. It's just not as high as the carbon target. Like, if you want to get something done, you talk about the carbon target. In a way, I feel like it's because carbon isn't easy, but it's graspable now in a way that it wasn't before. And I think the UN SDGs are at that same level of the greenhouse gas protocol in the way that that was, and that, yeah, high-level government, global target, but we now need to do that same work of translating it into impactful actions that we as individuals can have. There's a great book called Mission Economy, um, which looks at things like the NASA, the, the NASA moonshot and how you can identify these bold challenges to make the, those targets achievable, like what you're talking about, like net zero. I like that a lot, yeah. So what are so we are supposed to be here talking about open source? Yes, yeah. Oh, we're talking in general. We've just gone in general around, 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 around circles a little bit. But what are some of what are some kind of open source projects that you could point to? Some some and maybe some of the stuff working in the foundation, but also stuff outside of it related to you know green. What is what are some green open source initiatives? I'll probably refer to one of Dan's actually first of all because it's one that I actually use and like. He's, He's probably not going to refer to it because he's so he's so polite. He's like, That's what I was thinking. I didn't want, I didn't want, yeah, thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. <laughs> the Cloud Carbon Footprint Calculator, one of the initiatives that I know you're a part of is, which I use day, day in, day out, tracking kind of the carbon footprint from many different clouds um, and helping people to identify where they might be able to shrink that. I think that's great because it's an organization just making something that others needed and just sharing it for the common good. And it does seem to have active pull requests and issues and people are very welcoming. So that's one I particularly like. Do you know, let's dig into that, because that's actually quite interesting. Because I think that, that touches on some interesting areas, because A, there are some closed source versions of cloud carbon footprint. So that's an interesting angle to talk about that as well. I mean, why, what are some of the advantages of having something like cloud? So just for the benefit of everybody else, cloud carbon footprint, 
Actually, why don't you give an overview of what Cloud Carbon Footprint is, Dan? Yeah, so Cloud Carbon Footprint is an open source tool, mostly developed by ThoughtWorks, where I work, but also we have many contributors in the open source community and some of the members of the Green Software Foundation. And the way that the software works is it connects to cloud provider APIs and it supports AWS, Google Cloud, and Microsoft Azure, connects to the usage and billing APIs, and then with a, a custom methodology based on you know best practice and academic research, we convert that usage data in terms of compute, storage, networking, and memory, firstly into a a quantified energy consumption or an estimated energy consumption. And then based on publicly available data sets of emissions factors based on where that cloud usage exists, what data center, the cloud provider, we then convert that into estimated carbon emissions. And it it provides the data in a front-end dashboard where you can view it in some data visualization, but you can also just consume it via API or CLI. We wanted to provide a way to understand and explore that data in a variety of different ways based on the context and we recently added support for on-prem where you sort of provide your data in a CSV format and we estimate on-premise. And also, like you mentioned with the Boa Vista API SIM, we added support for embodied emissions as well based on the carbon intensity standard. But yeah, it's it's a tool we've sort of put out there about a year and a half ago and it's sort of grown in popularity and usage in, in that time. So something we're hopefully a little, a little bit proud of and we hope to see people use. One thing I will add, you notice I said the word estimated energy consumption, it's not the same as the actual energy data that cloud providers would have of their their data centers. And major cloud providers all sort of provide different tooling using more potentially more accurate and measured approaches for the usage. But as you say, Asim, it's sort of closed box in some ways. To varying degrees, it's a little bit of a black box in terms of where that data is sourced. And so there's interesting, like we went for a trade-off of easier access to the data, better usability, better overall support with multi-clouds because we don't have access to the underlying data. So there's like that trade-off with accuracy versus sort of usability, you know, in various contexts. I liked your mention of and reference to closed source tooling as well, because one thing that your project made me think of and a number of things the Green Software Foundation doing made me think of is that we launched as a foundation the software carbon intensity standard last year in the alpha version. And I'm glad that that's done almost early in the development of this software because there was already starting to be a lot of different organizations measuring the carbon intensity in many different ways. So by having this standard early, I feel like it's going to help a lot of these open source and closed source companies at least settle on a way that they aren't kind of, they're comparable. There's an incentive to drive carbon down. This has more been our longer term planning, but we've talked a lot about, imagine if users of these various tools or software could optionally opt in to sharing some of the statistics or data about maybe their company size, number of employees, industry, and and some of the outputs of these various tools into some sort of centralized way to understand comparatively across industries, what does good look like? What does not good look like? So not just you internally using the SCI to measure against yourself, but how could you compare against competitors or other comparable organizations in some way? I think we might be a little bit a way off from achieving that, but it'd be really interesting to think about. Yeah, that's a really good good point. I think one of the, it, it might just only happen because it's because you're, you're talking about using the cloud carbon footprint as an SCI measurement. Is that what you described? Yeah. I believe we haven't implemented the SCI yet within cloud carbon footprint, but it's definitely on the roadmap. Just, just in case we haven't mentioned it for the audience, because we, we, we get we get into that that 
that phase of, of 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 our field where we just we just kind of dive straight into our own kind of terminology. So the SEI is a, is a is a measurement methodology being developed in the foundation for essentially scoring a, a software application for for carbon emissions. So just just going back to cloud carbon, I think it's an interesting. I think it's a, the, the, there's a debate out there. An old debate, you know, open source versus closed source. You know, what are the advantages, disadvantages of each? And I think this is again just a great example because every single cloud. We've actually had a podcast episode about talking about all the various cloud and 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 they're different. Everyone will have their own their own measurement tooling. Whereas cloud carbon footprint is an open source one, and I think one of the interesting things about that is it's actually a lot easier to engage with because of the openness. You know when. You know, I remember Dan when you reached out to me, kind of in wearing my white Microsoft hat to to engage. It was actually quite challenging to get people to kind of start having those conversations with you because everybody's there thinking, well, what can what can we say? Like, I don't want to reveal anything. There has been NDA signed and all sorts of stuff. Whereas as soon as something becomes open source, boom, it becomes easy. It's easy. It enables that collaboration, and then everybody can just see the work that you're doing. They can verify. There's not. There's no hoops to 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 jump over and that's kind of one of the clear kind of advantages of open source i would see is 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 well whatever i don't know what word to use to describe what i just said like collaboration well i suppose that's how the fundamental nature of open source is collaboration but anyway actually no it's not i'm ram i'm rambling now but it's it's to be open but it enables collaboration in a way which closed source solutions don't it cuts through legal and governance and technical barriers too because i mean i don't think it's just a green thing I mean, if you look mid-pandemic, there were lots of people struggling with a solution for vaccine passports. And you had cities and towns in the US collaborating with universities across Europe, collaborating with small villages from Australia. And can you imagine those three very geographically and, and size different organizations collaborating without open source? It wouldn't have happened. So it, it provides visibility, I guess, and a shared platform too. Yeah. With, with closed source, you can't, like your methodology is fully, it's out there. It's completely out there. Every single number and people can review it and back it up and, and it builds that trust in, in you see essentially you're creating something which you know, provides data which makes decisions. Everything is, is, is out there and open to be reviewed, which is a real advantage. I mean, I guess open source isn't always great too because one of the things... What? Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love open source. It's what I do day in, day out. But I want to be real. There are challenges which organizations and people need help overcome. I mean, first of all, you get a lot of people working on it side of their desk around their day job. And I guess in the foundation, we've probably even seen that that means that people might tag their name to a project but not have the time to commit or things get spun up and they go stale. I think open source is sometimes seen as a panacea for let's just get something cool done without thinking about all the hard work and support that needs to go to make that work. Yeah, I was going to say something similar to Chris in that open source doesn't mean that you, you don't need things like leadership and project management and product development and thinking, right? Like there are still some of those those core roles and responsibilities that would be required with any in-house software development team is still sort of required. It might be a little bit more piecemeal in that it's provided by different community members and sort of globally in different time zones around the world. But some of those key aspects to successful software development are still, are still real, really important. And 
oftentimes I've seen organizations just, oh, there's this, like, let's use this open source tool, um, bring it in. And they, you know, don't actually invest some of the time to understand how it's working or, or invest time in investing back into the tool itself. So it, there's still still some, some of that work involved. One other note I'll make is that you mentioned the legal side of things, Chris, I think we thought long and hard about the license that we were going to use for Cloud Carbon Footprint. And for us, we settled on the Apache 2, which is similar in terms of permissiveness to MIT. And it's we felt it was really important to have a license that allowed anyone, any organization or individual in the world to use the software in any way they wanted. If, if that meant they were going to take Cloud Carbon Footprint code and build a paid closed source service using that code, that was okay for us because for us, it wasn't, it's about engaging the community and growing adoption of this tool and similar tools rather than necessarily holding it tight to our chest and trying to have the secret source that, you know, that we want to provide to our clients or to partners. So that was, a, that's sort of a key aspect. Different license types, more restrictive ones can often be a deal breaker for some companies and organizations to adopt software. Yeah, I don't know about you, but sometimes it can also feel like, you know, when you've got a toddler or a child is holding a suite and you have to kind of prise their fingers off it. At times for an organization, it can be quite hard to make that decision. And I say that because we, we've contributed some code as, as Avenard to the Green Software Foundation. It's the start of that CICD pipeline tooling. But one of the reasons why I push for that is because I also think if you keep that secret source close to your heart, you run the risk of people, first of all, jumping over you because they just want to get things done. They want to get things done quickly. What you do becoming out of date and stale, and then you've invested a whole load of time in something which isn't compatible with what people are now using. You can also just look like a, a bad actor, particularly in fields like this, where we're not, I don't know, making a search tool in comparison to like, you know, the whole open search, elastic search Ferrari. We're trying to actually solve a problem here where fundamentally, if the world doesn't go near zero, we might all die in a massive heat death. <laughs> There's good reasons to do it. <laughs> I think that's also where this is one of the things I'm, I, I recognized earlier in the foundation because, hey, look, let me be honest. Both of you work for organizations that are competitors. Let's just be out front. You're, you're competitors, right? But the, yeah, but, the, yeah, but, but, you're, but, but what's wonderful, I realized, is that open source is, is a way you can collaborate with each other. Because there is an underlying layer. Every single time you talk to a customer and you're going to be implementing something, there's an underlying layer of trying to solve a problem, which is common. And that's kind of really what the advantage of open source is. And, and Dan, I love the fact that you use that, that permissive licensing. I always say, like, even in the foundation, we've used, we've used MIT for some of for, uh, for some of before our content is, is Creative Commons. I've forgotten the, the, the one where you can just make a derivative and, and just rename it and sell it like the most because that's because it's all about how do you kickstart this ecosystem than than anything else yeah open source is again collaboration between uh, a method of collaboration between organizations that would typically be competitors i think is beautiful yeah and it's nice to be able to set that aside but also you avoid all the antitrust concerns operating out in the open in a way it also removes a lot of the kind of the, the waving of i did this you did this because people can see what you worked on, they can see you join these meetings, which means we recognize the contributions of those that don't write code, which is an important piece that's often overlooked because consensus, meetings, design, discussion is as important as everything else. But you can also see the code and the minutes, which is nice. I don't know about you both, but I, I love feedback. Like I love getting feedback and there's nothing better than, you know, me pushing out some code to a, a project and then getting a, a pull request or an issue correcting me. 
and say that I was like wrong about this. And like, sometimes that can be a challenge, but open source provides so much more scope for our feedback mechanism from experts and community members. And it allows projects like Cloud Carbon Footprint, but many others to sort of better course, course correct uh, towards things that are valuable because you have more feedback and more users, you know, giving you yeah improvements as you go. I think open source is a bit of a mindset as well, because I'm not going to be a, as uh, nice. I sometimes like feedback, but I have to be in the right mindset to accept it. Other times I'm like, oh, I just want to get on and do things. Um, but open source does get you into that mindset of going, actually, no, hang on, they've got a point. I'm wrong. I can, I can acknowledge it and we can move on when you're in that headspace. <laughs> I think it gets a lot into kind of uh, psychology and uh, where you are in your life as a human being at the current moment in time as to whether you can, uh, whether you can accept that feedback. But it's always I've seen I've I've seen feedback where I'm like that is that is not okay or that's but then again even that feedback is public so you know you, that that conversation is not happening in private so you you can then so you know it's happening and then you can correct them and, and you know do you think you you reminded me of something one one of my I don't know if it's related I'll say it anyway one of my kind of like happiest moments with the foundation was when my first pull request got rejected or one of my one the first time one of my pull requests got rejected because I was like. Thank, thankfully, there is like a community of people and they're confident enough to kind of feedback to each other and kind of reject things and accept things. And I was like, excellent. This is going to, you know, we, this the, the culture's there. It's going to work. Yeah, rejecting, being okay with having pull requests rejected must be, must be a really important thing in, in, in any kind of open source community. Yeah, I like the visibility that gives, though, because it's a bit of learning experience. And as long as it's public, others can then see what the feedback was that they gave to you. I think the, the only thing I struggle with sometimes is making sure people can give that negative or critical feedback in a way that you can learn from it. Because you don't want to put off future contributors. I feel like if it's your first one, you can also feel a little bit burnt, too. Particularly for junior devs, I see them contribute once, get strong feedback, and they're like, oh, I'm scared of this now. <laughs> I think you mentioned the word culture, Asim, and I think that's really important. Like different communities or that are a foundation or a particular open source project have d different cultures. And I think being deliberate about the type of culture that you want to foster is really important. I know at the, the foundation early days, we worked on some principle, like principles, cultural principles to under, underpin how we engage within the foundation. I think similar um, thought process is really useful for open source projects having a really grounded code of conduct ideally you don't ever need to use the code of conduct but it's important that it's there in case you know people sway away from the intended culture and chris i love your example of like the that junior devs me and then getting negative feedback i've seen it happen i think something that i like to think about is before providing you know, direct or constructive feedback, like ask, ask a question instead, like why, you know, ask questions to understand before delivering any sort of judgment or value in terms of people's contributions. Yeah. Questions is, is a great one, particularly being out in the open and chatting because I know internally and in the past, this is certainly something I'd like to think I've learned from. I can see something and I take a negative intention from it. And it goes back to that psychology piece. When you ask, often you find that there are really good reasons for why someone did something the way that they did. And it also brings you closer together to work together in the future. Sorry, we're making open source sound really touchy-feely now. And good, but good things get done with open source. <laughs> and it is, it is, it is. It should, it should be. It's, I think there's a, there's a human component to everything, which I think really does need to be addressed. And I think it's actually, you remind, you remind me, Dan, because that, that was one of the, I'm trying to find it right now. I can't find it, but I remember... We, we wrote 
we wrote, I think we wrote in our manifesto, assume good intent, which I think is one of the hard, like, I, we have to actually have that at Microsoft as well, like assume good intent. And like asking, and that's the, the, and it's the hardest advice, it's the great advice to give. It's hard advice to remember to use. We sound so, so wise here, but I'm sure there's many times that we kind of fail to do that ourselves. But yeah, asking that question, why, oh, what was your reasoning behind this? Instead of this looks dumb. So what are your reasoning behind this? And then you realize, oh, that's a really good reason. Oh, that's kind of how it goes, yeah. Should we talk a little bit more? It's great just for us to talk about generally kind of open source kind of challenges and, and solutions. I'm just wondering, do we want to do we want to kind of t- touch on some more of the the kind of green open source projects that are you know, that are happening? I know Chris, you just mentioned uh, a CI/CD tool. I forgot what CI/CD stands for. <laughs> continuous integration, and continuous deployment. <laughs> All right. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I know that was a contentious naming. Um, and then there's also the Carbonware uh, software development kit. Those are two of my favorite projects that we have because they come at a very similar problem at very different parts of the developer lifecycle. And I'm excited for the fact that the Green Software Foundation has a lot of different roles and people in it. So we've got developers, we've got data scientists, we, we have business folks. And what the Carbon... Well, I'll start with the CICD tool. What that does is that lets developers at the moment ingest their infrastructure as code, I guess almost the design patterns for the code that you want to end up in the cloud, the, t- the services which you want deployed in Azure, Amazon, Google, and other cloud providers, and forecast what the likely carbon emissions are going to be. We would like to do static code analysis, but it's a hard problem. It doesn't do that yet. So you forecast. The Carbonware Software Development Kit is almost the next part of the chain. Once you have your applications up in the cloud, you have your infrastructure, this lets you instrument them to figure out what times of day should this software run? When is the energy clean? Where should this run? And manage your workloads. Then you have tools at the other end that can look at that forecast of both the infrastructure and when software should run and tell you the actuals. So I feel like we're getting a really whole end-to-end view of here's the forecast, here's what actually happened. Are we slowly plugging the gaps so that every part of what a developer would do is covered? And that makes me really excited. I actually hadn't joined the dots between the CICD static analysis and the carbon until just now. Because what the CICD tool will do is, you know, I can point it to my GitHub repository of my entire backend application. And it will, just by looking at, I don't know, my Docker files, try and figure out this is this, these are all the instances you're going to probably create. This is probably what the utilization is going to be, and therefore this will be probably what the carbon emissions will be. And the carbon aware SDK is it, it, that what that does is it, it essentially gives you, you know, advice. I don't know how to describe it regarding like when is the cleanest time of the day to run stuff. And, and you never really joined those two together, so you could actually figure the actual carbon emissions and potential carbon emissions out. Oh, wow. Okay. So forward looking. And then what Dan's got, like the cloud carbon footprint, is almost that backwards looking viewpoint. So eventually one day we'll get that delta between this is what we forecast. This is what happened. How can we slowly close that gap and figure out what bits can we improve more? And in an ideal world, every part of everyone's job could just be greened in that way, which would just be awesome. One of the thoughts I've had for the longest time is, is you know, I like the way you phrased it in terms of the software development lifecycle. Yeah, and that's the way I kind of think about what what we need to to get to. It's kind of one. Of, wouldn't it be great if if as you're developing code, like on your laptop, you had information there and then 
that would inform you somewhat about, well, you've just made this, I'm not, I'm not even going to call it code change, but architectural change, some sort of change to your software. By the way, it might have, you know, this, you might, might this, this change might increase your carbon emissions somewhat. And then I, and I, then I always imagine, well, what's the next stage in every, in every developer's journey is to check something in and push it to some sort of a GitLab, GitHub, whatever it is, code, code repository. And then that's what you're describing, Chris, is kind of like that, that static code analysis there at that point, you know, through some action. So then you can see like, well, my push, my code change merged in with the actual code base estimates this, this kind of uh, impact. And then once you actually are deploying that into production, that's when tools like the Cloud Carbon Footprint. So I, yeah, I, I like the way the so I think that's that's a really good way of, of thinking about it. Kind of all that chain through, and all of that really has to be open source. I just I mean maybe apart from the deploying, to the maybe cloud providers could come up with their own pr- uh, proprietary way, but everything else in that journey probably has to be open source. And even they're collaborating, because, I mean, if you look at Google, Amazon, Azure, it's in their interest to make it as easy as possible to get on their cloud. People don't want to be locked in. So in a way, people are competing on the quality of their services, but not how you get the information into them. That's a contentious point. Should we, should we dig into that a little bit? Go for it. Go but, for it. I don't know, because I've had that, because I think there is this, there is, and I know, I know Chris Adams as well has this idea as well, of if, if, if you have open source if you if you're building something on some kind of non-vendor locked in open source system let's just say kubernetes for instance you then have the freedom to to move mm-hmm. that non and you can therefore use that power you know if provider a isn't adhering to some green standard or something you can easily move to provider b is that kind of what your the open source it thing? is I can see where you're going with that is that when you start to use vendor specific extensions, you then get cruft and little bits of locking, little hooks in your code, like dragging a fish out of the water that make it really hard to move from one to the other. But, but also I would argue that I've heard and I, and I am not an engineer in those platforms. I I do not, I don't have firsthand knowledge. This is secondhand information, but the more vendor locking you get, the more efficient the actual platform is. Does that make sense? I think that was the case, and I'm going to strongly push back on that one. Oh. I mean, I will repeat the fact that I am at Microsoft Build at a Microsoft <laughs> Conference, and later today I'm going to be talking about Azure Container Apps. But that is right. built on Dapper. Dapper is a non-green mm. project that distributed application platform runtime. What that does is it takes all these vendor lock-in pieces. It's open source. It's totally open source. It was contributed to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. What it does is it hides all these proprietary pieces behind abstractions. So you're not using an Azure SQL database or RDS in Amazon. You're just storing data. You aren't needing to know necessarily how even Kubernetes works. It has different building blocks, calling services, saving data, publishing, observing, and secrets. And then it has little adapters, which gives you that developer productivity of moving fast. So allowing you to stay efficient, allowing your apps to stay small so they can be carbon efficient whilst not locking you in. And uh, that, to me, is the ultimate expression of, of freedom from one place to another. So that really services, again, is all you care about. Another example I might add is um, Spotify's open source backstage tool that provides an interface for developers to deploy resources across all the cloud providers, but many other infrastructure and, and services as, as sort of like a central dashboard for them to do it. And the reason I mention it is we actually recently worked with Spotify to publish a, a plugin for cloud carbon footprint. So if 
if you're using Backstage, you can now sort of install the Cloud Carbon Footprint plugin, connect it to your cloud providers and get that same data and data visualization within within that platform. And I think that's a, a really neat example of different open source communities collaborating in a way and adding building blocks together to build better solutions, which I, I think was really neat. Yeah, I love it. Backstage is another great example because that does a similar thing of dividing up tools into categories, infrastructure, monitoring, discovery, and letting developers pick what's right for them through that agnostic portal. Yeah, it's awesome. I see now. So I'm, I'm, I'm standing corrected. Well, or, or I suppose we're all learning together. Seemed, but to your original question, like, yeah. are there efficiency gains or cost gains? I'm going to give you the classic consultant answer. It depends. It, dep- <laughs> it, it depends on what your goals are, right? If your goal yeah. is to get ev- the most efficient bang for your buck in terms of do- like dollar spent, then having a deep partnership with a single cloud provider where you can negotiate every single cent for all the instances, like maybe that produces the, the best gains because you pay a lot of money for that. But is that your goal? It, it, is your goal to scale most effectively? Is your goal developer effectiveness, developer efficiency? It really, it really, it really uh, depends. The trade-offs. I like to think of software architecture or software in general as trying to pick the least worst decision. Yeah, right. There's always trade-offs. There's always There's downsides. Always trade-offs, yeah. People often think of it as, as Lego, but I think of it as marble run because you've got these whole runs. You've got to get the marbles to fit through as quickly as possible. I like that because it shows like the uh, Rube Goldberg-esque like, maze of parts and pieces. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually fits with me because I play with my son's Lego, but I do play with his marble run a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> both of you, you mentioned Dapper, Chris, you mentioned Dapper, and Dan, you mentioned Backstage, and they essentially are, sounds like facades to here's me like bringing up my design patterns from you know i, I did used to code but facade for um for, for essentially kind of the, the wide range of you know not well in this example cloud providers and kind of their interfaces and so maybe it's like a layer thing like you know as long as it's a thin layer on top where you could have like all the all the optimizations underneath but like the interface layer itself is the same and that's kind of where open source comes in and i was going to say dan like that's one of the, the big things about cloud carbon footprint is it's multi-cloud. And the only way that could be is if it was the only way a multi-cloud solution could exist. Well, I I take that back. If there was a startup creating it, they could do it. But the, the only realistic way it's going to create is if it's open source, because I know, like, I can, I think I can say this, but like Microsoft, I think it might be obvious that Microsoft customers, Microsoft's got its cloud platform, but they also, shock horror, use other cloud platforms as well. And then they're asking questions, well, you've got your wonderful tool. Like, can you, can you, Microsoft, can you make your carbon measurement tool calculate my azure and my google workloads and like microsoft would never it's like legally that's just a minefield you wouldn't even go in that direction from a closed source tool but like an open source would actually allow that so that's kind of like for creating a facade amongst lots of different cloud providers or lots of different apis chris i feel has a different opinion or no, no, I, I don't think Microsoft would never do it. I mean, look at Azure Arc. That's exactly what that's trying to do. Yeah, yeah. But actually, a lot of the underlying tech from Azure Arc, there are other cloud providers out there too, yeah. <laughs> is open source as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's maybe like the mechanism that would allow that kind of cross. So from the from the feeling I heard is like, if, if, you, if you can't publish why you're saying your Amazon number is X, then there's then you won't. So if, if you could publish that in some open source if the methodology for why you're calculating Amazon numbers a certain way is public, then that's going to stop you from any legal ramifications. And does that take us back to the SCI data project, like another open source project at the foundation, in that 
Yep. We're trying to get providers and vendors and serve manufacturers to share their data publicly to prevent these legal concerns. If everyone has their data out in the open, they don't feel precious like they're being compared in a negative way. So it's incentives to make things better. But we also let all of these open source tools consume from a curated, trusted data source. So open source is almost like that trusted gate for good data. Yeah, trusted is I think is the big term, big word there. And I, and I think by the fact that you know, well, the open source working group, there's like a, a collection of people sitting there curating it, experts in the field. That's what gives it the trust because anybody can. I can create open source data in my, in my, in my, in my. I have got several open source projects that no one should trust heavy burden but dan and i and yourself we're trusted in this <laughs> one, one day we're going to have our equivalent of Elasticsearch and open search i'm sure but like it's, yeah. it's cool to be included in all of this to be honest and, and to see where it's all developing at speed yeah chris you've done a much better job than me at going over the projects in the open source working group <laughs> i might i've barely listed any i might list one one more to add alongside the ones you mentioned is the the sci open ontology project which looks at a different part of the problem domain of the software carbon intensity standard so when access to the trusted data which you mentioned chris is totally a problem that we're trying we're really trying to solve but another problem let's say you do have the data another problem that comes up when trying to utilize the the um, sci standard is where do i draw the software boundary let's say you have a some software running on an instance in the cloud and you have a database and then you have a large number of users maybe accessing that api or something do you include all of the end user devices that are being used to access that API? Do you include the networking over the internet to access it? You know, or do you just include the software code that's running? Like making those decisions is something that is up to users of the SCI. And so the, the Open Ontology project is about defining a standardized way of making those decisions about how, how and where you draw the software boundary so it can be consistent and a lot easier for people to sort of make those decisions. Yeah, which is important. I guess it helps the training as well, because I mean, you made an awesome workshop, which again, you've shared with us around how to calculate SEI. And I tried running it um, at our organization. And it's incredible, actually, when you get people using tools like the SEI and you see, you think you've written something really clearly and had people adding up all these different uh, kill R figures, averaging them, doing them together, picking different R figures from month to API call and R is a part of the SEI calculation so the SCI ontology project you mentioned is almost like a training tool to help standardize the way people do that. Yeah. And I will share more details of that workshop, by the way, because it was a car crash in a good way. I learned a lot. <laughs> awesome. I'm running, meant to be running in a couple of weeks. So yeah, we should yeah. chat. Yeah. My, my, my advice on workshops, I used to do a lot of workshops, is like just make it as simple as you can and then make it 10 times simpler and you still there'll still be people struggling. So uh, yeah, it's always a challenge. We're reaching kind of the end, the end of the hour that we have. I just thought maybe give, give. I'd love to kind of ask you a, a more broader question, actually, each of you to, to, to see what's going on in the world. So, you know, what else in the world of green software has kind of got your you know, attention recently? I'll ask that to Chris first. Ooh, I feel really put on the spot now. Can I, can I go off piece and just pick something which I think is really cool in open source generally? Yeah. So that is that the United Nations, the US federal government, and the European Union have all set up open source project offices and are collaborating. And a lot of them are looking at digital public good, which includes green software. So the fact that you have not just your traditional corporate community and other organizations, but also now governments taking part, that's incredible. As long as their heft and size doesn't put off other people and having a chilling effect, 
I think this is going to be a really great sign for collaboration of the future. I'm going to give you two things that I'm thinking about. One, you sort of touched on this a bit as Sim in the, the, the software delivery life cycle and, you know, how we think about that. Something that I've been talking with our clients about and partners is there are many ways to solve a problem with software architecture, many different ways, maybe unlimited ways. Imagine if you could model the carbon and energy impact of different software architectures that solve a given domain problem prior to writing any code um, and make and factor that in as a cross-functional requirement with alongside cost and performance and security. And so right at the earliest stages before any lines of code have written, anything's pushed to a CI/CD pipeline, you can at least put some guardrails around the architectural direction that you head in. I haven't seen that done successfully yet. Maybe I, I, I missed it, but I think that would be really cool to think about and something that I'm, is sort of top of mind. Secondly, I just want to uh, give a call out to the Green Software Foundation Summit coming up next month. You know, dozens of uh, in-person and virtual events all around the world. I'm super excited to see some people in person in some cases for the first time in, uh, you know, two years. And that, yeah, go to the Green Software Foundation website to check it out. That is something on the on the calendar that I'm really looking forward to. How could I miss yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> Chris, Chris has been involved in that. Actually, I think, Chris, I, think, I don't think we've ever met in person, have we? So I'll be meeting you in person at the event, I think. Awesome. The yes. event. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. Uh, there's so many folks at the foundation I need to meet, particularly out from around the place. Are you are you tall? I don't know. I was, <laughs> you don't know her? You don't know who, you know, people are quite surprised. I'm quite a tall person. But anyway. Um, <laughs> I was literally about to say height is the most surprising thing whenever I've met somewhere. But I'm like, yeah. you're so tall. Or in some cases, not as tall. It's like, you have no idea how. That's what people, that's, yeah, that's what people say to me. And I say a lot of the current chairs, many of the projects. So Shimon and Fergus from two random projects are both pretty tall. And I'm just average. Someone's going to be there. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> Yeah, and in terms of my answer, kind of like one thing that, and I don't know if it's just been a number of changes, number of essentially jobs going up recently. One thing I've noticed, you know, in the world of green software is a number of jobs with the words kind of green or related to green software. I mean, honestly, two years ago, if you didn't claw your role yourself inside your organization, there were no like jobs out there kind of publicly, you know, posted. Um, it was deeply unlikely. Now I'm seeing, you know, you've both got titles that kind of related to green software. I saw, I saw Amazon posted up. They've got roles for uh, sustainable solution architects. There's a new role for a green cloud advocacy lead at Microsoft. And I'm seeing more and more, not that often, but more and more kind of roles appear in this space. And I think that's one of the most important indicators of you know, the validity of what we're doing. You know, there is a the movement behind this, there is an ecosystem, the business behind it, and that's really, you know, what will drive this this field, I think, in the in the future. So it gives me a lot of confidence. Yeah. What I want to say on that is, I think also your leadership and the Green Software Foundation has been a big part of that. Because I'm going to say, I was watching Bill nearly a year ago today when the GSF was announced, and I text, I was on holiday, I text my boss of your people in the organization, you know, why aren't we in this? What's happening? <laughs> we, should, we, we love green. What are we doing? Get, let's get us in there. <laughs> Oh wow! Was that was that was that the was that the inception story for Avenard? Yeah, uh, and yeah, oh. we were so happy to join. So. Yeah, it was really good to yeah, it was really good to have you. I'm really, really glad you're here. I awesome. So maybe just wrap, before I wrap up, any other information you want to give? Any 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 tell people where they can find you, socials or anything? Sure. So you've called me CLJ a few times. That's my initials. So you can find me at CLJ the two animals underscore the letters CLJ because I. So many organizations have Chris's, so that's always me. 
Uh, yeah, and I'm on Twitter and GitHub. Also, also on Twitter and GitHub, the handle D Tokley. Uh, so D T O A K L E Y. Wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you, for uh, being our guest today and also being such active participants and chairs of the foundation. Your your leadership and your guidance has just been instrumental in, in, in us getting to where we are today. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Environment Variables. All the resources for this podcast, including links to our guests and more about open source, green software, as well as the Green Software Foundation, are in the show description below. We hope you enjoyed the show and see you on the next one. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show and of course we want more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation.com. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.